Welcome back to Potter's Pockets, episode 19, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, chapters 14 and 15, Snape's Grudge and the Quidditch Final. And I welcome back my esteemed colleagues, Miss Sarah Miller and Mr. Wesley Shantz. Welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. Hey, y'all. And Sarah, so we were doing a pre-show just seconds before we started this, and I I sort of want to pick up where we, we left off. Sarah, you were talking about the power of discourse and how when when often when I bring up topics that I want to cover during the course of a show, you think that you've, you've been thinking about totally different aspects of the readings and uh, not what I've been seeing. And so I made the comment that it's sort of like the snitch is different for all of us. And, uh, and then you were talking about the power of discourse in the seminar you've been at today. Um, did you want to, could you follow up on that? Yeah. A little bit? Yeah. I, I just, I'm at a seminar for all of our listeners out there, the five of you. Um, First of all, let me apologize for like the shit audio (laughs) over the last few months. Second of all, um, I'm at the Seminars for Ignatian Leadership, which are organized and um, executed by the Jesuit Schools Conference. And my, my current school is not a Jesuit school, but they are gracious enough to be supporting my continuation of this program. And Um, one of the things that we've done is uh, we've done a lot of things with these seminars. Uh, It's sort of this fusion of leadership, professional development, as well as um, spirituality with an eye development um, and practice with an eye towards leadership in the Ignatian tradition. But um, one of the things we've done over the course of our three, our three sessions thus far is, um, you know, take the Myers-Briggs and what's, that means for us as leaders, maybe running a meeting, et cetera. But um, yesterday we talked specifically about how um, the Myers-Briggs functions um, within the context of team dynamics. And um, we analyzed our profiles vertically instead of horizontally. Um, And so figuring out what your, um, you know, your primary or your your first function is, it's like some little math juggling thing, but Mine is extroverted feeling. And it's the thing that you, according to the, um, according to the, the paradigm of the Myers-Briggs, it's the thing that you're sort of programmed with, that you've had since, you know, birth. Um, uh, and the, the secondary or, or ancillary function is the thing that, that you gain pretty, at a pretty young age. Um, and then there's a tertiary function that you develop in adulthood, and then there's an inferior function that you might never develop, but is at least really good to know that is not a strength of yours, but maybe something that requires a little more attention. And mine is um, introverted thinking. Uh, in other words, like if I have to sit down and think about something, I get really anxious if I have to do all of that thinking alone, which makes sense because I I'd like to talk things out. Um, I am always really kind of uh, insecure about my own capacity for uh, logical thought, like independent of discourse or other people telling me I'm on the right track. Mm. Um, and anyway, so long story long, when you, uh, Alex, for the, for all of our listeners out there, um, Alex often tells us what he wants, you know, what's something that he's like really excited to talk about, which is awesome. And then I think like, shit, I didn't think about that. <laughs> But I, but I think we always find a way to have an organic conversation. And sometimes I'm loath to admit 
how powerful some of these personality type typologies are. And of course, they're not predictive or prescriptive, but this one particularly seemed apt for me that like, I think we gain a lot by seeking something the way we need to seek it. Um, and for me, this kind of discourse helps, um, helps make sense of things, uh, helps apply thought to feeling um, or instinct. Anyway, long story long, that's my snitch. Um, well, that's how about y'all? Well, that's interesting too. Just, I mean, I, I, I was very much into the Myers-Briggs and Jungian psychology during graduate school. And I would say I continue to be fairly interested but um, that there's also this new um, uh, psychometric test that makes the claim that every questionnaire test actually breaks down into a poor or good um, aspect of what it represents. And that's the big five. And so I, I would love to compare those two models of psychology because I, uh, a lot of the MBTI, I would say, is in the big five, but the, but the big five has the power and the force of being based on a brute force statistical model, which means it just appeared uh, with like thousands of questionnaires being given. So it's pretty interesting. And I, I would say that you all, it, within its typology, there's one dimension, there are five dimensions in it. And one is agreeable, disagreeable. And I would say a fundamental difference between us that I think I observed, which is very interesting, is I would say you seem very agreeable, which means compassionate, polite, uh empathetic um not too pushy whereas disagreeable people are like your lawyer types or your you know super banker types mm -hmm. they're willing to argue they don't care about other people's feelings they're less likely to give gifts though they do get pleasure when they do give gifts they are uh they're more they're more assertive and they um uh you know they don't mind offending the people around them uh as much mm -hmm. and that, that's a big difference, I would say, uh, you know, I'm pretty disagreeable. And uh, I think that also affects the line of thought because one thing I wanted to talk about today, actually the two things I wanted to talk about were competitions or, or rather fights, the fight between Snape and Harry that really, really boils over to a level that I thought was extraordinary um, between a teacher and a student, especially in private like that. And, uh, and then also the Quidditch final. And so what my interest was drawn mm -hmm. to were, were sort of emotional, you know, fights. And so that's another aspect of being disagreeable. You're more competitive than you are cooperative. And so Wes has been working on me quite a bit there. Um, <laughs> uh, Wes, what do you think about all this? I know we've started off on sort of an odd, but I think fruitful and interesting note. Um, I guess... I don't have a whole lot of opinion about the, the different psychological things. I think it's cool, Sarah, that you get to do like a seminar um, and and get to reflect on your practice. And Alex, I think it's cool that you've been recording a bunch of your lectures um, and putting them up on your podcast. Um, I started listening to those. I think it's really a awesome resource to have. And I do hope that our five or however many listeners there are out there are able to kind of like, you know, <laughs> find bits and pieces of, of this various stuff that, that appeals to them. Like, you know, they find something uh, rewarding or interesting or whatever.
I think we may have just lost Wes. Uh, Sarah, are you I think still there? I, I, yeah, I'm still here. I think we All lost right. Wes. All right, he disapparated for a moment. Um, all right, and we're back. So, um, well, Snape's, Snape's grudge. And so in this chapter, and I was wondering what y'all's thoughts were on this chapter, um, we find the out that Snape's hate goes very deep for Harry's father. And in fact, Harry tries to use his, the fact that, Dumbled a fact that Dumbledore told him to perhaps give him a trump card over Snape, who I, I'm actually pretty interested to know. Well, wh why do you think Dumbledore gave that news about Snape? Do you think that he thought that it might be of use to Harry to use that in such a weaponized format at some point? It was a, there was a, it was a vicious fight between Snape and Harry when Snape thought he had caught him coming back from Hogsmeade. And I just wondered what y'all thought about that as educators. It's always a tricky thing to have to call a student out on something where they are just baldly lying to you um, because that can potentially be really negative for your relationship, obviously. Um, but then again, you sort of have to, you know, put your foot down at a certain point and say like the words you're saying are not corresponding to reality anymore and you're the authority now so you know as much as you might have like bad memories of teachers sitting you down and telling you to be quiet and and listen because they're in charge well now the tables have turned now you're the, you're the teacher right and and like that's kind of what I come back to as Snape is he for so long was that one who getting bullied and so that's kind of how he became the bully Hmm. Uh, I um yeah I think one of the things that I'm struck with is that um uh it seems like I got the vibe this time reading reading the uh chapter that Snape knows what the piece of parchment is and um uh, because he he made a, a comment something about directly from the manufacturers like it's almost as though he knows what each of those four names mean um i don't did any of did either of you get that sense um that he knows a lot more about what he what's going on than it than harry is willing to admit or than quite frankly he is willing to admit you know he doesn't say i know that this was a that this belonged to your father um, and he doesn't even say what it was that um, was the highly amusing joke that could have resulted in his death, though I think we eventually find out what that was in maybe in this book, but maybe in the fifth book, too. We're given some more shape to that, but like um, he knows. Um, and maybe he recognizes the insults that each of those four um, map writers offers him the large nose ugly git idiot and you know his slimy hair like those must have been things that were um uh, like two like uh things that were said to him when he was um, when he was in high school maybe that's what triggers his his memory like oh this must have been that piece of paper that they were always working on um maybe it was i don't know i, I just sort of got the vibe that he knows what the map is um I don't know. Well, um, yeah, it's curious because, well, first I wanted to say to your point about bullying, Wes, that would certainly explain 
Draco Malfoy, after how we've seen Lucius Malfoy treat Dobby, and, well, most likely how he probably treats Draco to some extent at home, too. We have seen him speak rather insultingly to him uh, about his marks not measuring up to Hermione's, you know, of mixed parentage, or rather of muggle parentage, even worse, to the Malfoys. Um, and so that might be interesting for him. But I think, Sarah, to your point, uh, definitely the connection between Snape and Harry and Lupin and all these, and this strange map from nowhere and this mention of James and Sirius Potter is really taking shape. The relationship between Snape and Harry is actually getting nastier as the, the intrusion of Sirius Black and Lupin and memories of Pettigrew and, and that whole gang become uh, more present in Snape's mind. And so, mm -hmm. and so uh, Harry is actually starting to really fuse, I feel, or it's hard to say, fuse with the image of his father with Snape. And, um, and I don't know, it's interesting, Wes, just something you did there was sort of, it, I felt like you were sort of taking Snape's perspective. And this is sort of a disobedient, lying kid in front of you. And it's funny because we often see it from Harry's perspective. And, you know, it's this overbearing Snape trying to entrap you and catch you for something and you hate him. So who cares if you lie to him? But from your perspective, it actually, you know, this is some defiant kid who refuses to be honest with you, who has this piece of magical equipment, who is likely sneaking out of the castle, even though that somebody wants him dead and is totally ungrateful. Um, and so that is, a, that isn't, I don't know if that is how you were seeing it, but I, I could certainly see that as a way to see from Snape's perspective as sort of a legitimate perspective, not just a, a hateful and resentful one as he usually appears. Uh, yeah, I mean, since we're sort of in the teacher's point of view here, um, it seems like seeing it from Snape's side of things is, uh, is interesting as, as trying to look at this book for, for ideas about teaching and ways to think about um, schools and things. Obviously, you're gonna, if you're not a teacher like Snape, you're gonna have coworkers who are, you know, one way or the other, you're gonna come across that kind of um, relationship uh, between teacher and student, which is like really negative, right? And most schools aren't gonna have that kind of extend over the course of seven years, probably, uh, but still like the, the same kind of dynamics will, will manifest um, in, a, in a shorter period of time too. Uh, this, and, and across generations, right? Um, but but this, this moment here where he, um, he seems to recognize what's going on in the map, like, yeah, I, I agree. Like those names have got to ring bells for him when he sees them start appearing mm -hmm. on this piece of paper. And I guess on the one hand, I definitely, I see how Snape gets, like loses his temper with this lying, you know, snot-nosed kid who like is covered in dirt and <laughs> like, oh yeah, you were up in the Gryffindor Tower. I mean, I'm sure all of us have stuff. Yeah, I'm sure all of us have have been lied to. Like, I had a kid, and I don't think that this is inappropriate to share, but I had a kid who plagiarized like 97% of a paper. <laughs> like, was like, he was he was he. He swore to me that he didn't plagiarize because he had closed the window from which he lifted the text and like 
before he copy and pasted it into his paper. Anyway, like just sometimes like the glaring lies are pretty shocking and it doesn't necessarily always serve the student to be like, no, you're lying. Right. Um, and that doesn't always work either. But I think the place where Snape really crosses the line, in my opinion, is by saying you're just like your father. Right. Because because I think the better teacher, I'm not saying that Lupin is a good teacher in this scenario either. Right. Like um, I, if I were Snape, I would be livid if a teacher came in and sort of um, kind of like cut my feet cut my legs from out from under under me and said, Oh no, no, I'm sure you're just overreacting about something. But um, uh, when he sinks to the level of his own students, um, like, mm. yes, teachers can get, teachers have emotions. They're not automatons, but you know, between the teacher and the student, one is an adult and one is not. And it is, it's almost like an opportunity that Snape had to actually have a large impact. Like when, when um, uh, Harry leaves um, uh, Lupin's office and Lupin says, don't ever expect me to cover for you again. I cannot make you take Sirius Black seriously, but I would have thought that what you would have heard about the Dementors, when the Dementors draw near you would have had more of an effect on you. Your parents gave their lives to keep you al to alive, to keep you alive, Harry. A poor way to repay them, gambling their sacrifice for a bag of magic tricks. He walked away leaving Harry feeling worse by far than he had at any point in Snape's office. And at some point, Harry also admits, or through the narrator, um, that Oh my gosh, would Malfoy believe what he had seen? Would anybody believe Malfoy? Nobody knew about the invisibility cloak, nobody except Dumbledore. His stomach turned over. Dumbledore would know exactly what had happened if Malfoy said anything. You know, um, the people whose, whose ad, um, admonitions we respond most to are the people for whom we have um, respect and that respect is earned and cultivated and obviously before this moment in the book Snape has done what he can to um, not earn that respect but um, I I do I want to hold him at fault in a way just because I think it's like an opportunity that he could have taken to be um, uh, to be a, a like a, a leader um, and to uh, be, be a better example. Like I think Snape could have um, reacted differently and, and had a greater impact on Harry. But like the irony that, I guess, and maybe not irony, but the foreshadowing in the event that got him in trouble was like mudslinging is exactly what, I mean, that's the metaphoric name for what the two do to each other, which is just, you know, throw mud in each other's faces in the form of insults. Um, uh, and I, I, I want to hold him accountable, even though I understand his emotional reaction, because I don't think that that, that would ever be appropriate actually in a classroom. No, no. And, uh, well, I mean, I'm just trying to look at this bit right now, but, well, yeah, I mean, Especially do I think, uh, it's interesting how you said that um, 
Lupin cuts the feet out from under Snape and that that's an inappropriate move from the, uh, the perspective of collegiality. And that that's sort of something that Lupin would have done for one of his friends when he was a student, but now he's a teacher. And so that's sort of an immature thing for him to do to cover, like mm. a student would do for another student using their little student code. He's not a student, he's a teacher now. He should be thinking like we're thinking. But then he does frame the situation with a very mature perspective that he then mm -hmm. drops right on Harry's head, which is, you know, and Harry doesn't even understand the full impact of this statement. Lupin was James mm -hmm. and Lily's, you know, one of their best friends, like their second best friend. And so when he hears that Harry hears the screams of Lily, that affects him very deeply too, because he knew her as a good friend. And he loved her and he loved James. And so, you know, he also sees from Snape's perspective, but then issues that perspective from a friendly voice. And then it really mm -hmm. hit home. It's like, that is just not because he wants to punish Harry, but because he wants him to understand just how stupid and grievous an action it was he was taking. And also I think this helps to us to understand that Hermione also had may have been misjudged by Ron and Harry. She's not being overzealous or over uh, protective and trying to keep Harry from going to Hogsmeade. She just, perhaps like you suggested last time, Sarah, is embodying a more mature perspective like we get from Lupin here. Um, mm -hmm. It's a heavy moment for, for Harry and for us. It's part of the sort of darkening or, or deepening of this uh, magical world we find ourselves in. Um, and so, well, how about some Quidditch? Yeah, sounds good. All right. Um, before we yeah. get to the, before yeah, yeah. we get to the Quidditch thing, um, I sort of wanted to talk about like what, if there, if, if there was any metaphor or like microcosm in Harry's second trip, trip to Hogsmeade. Um, like the the absence of Hermione, and if that if there's any like I know we were talking last time about you know is she sort of like the moral compass that the two of them don't have? Is she um, you know an example of somebody who with great power comes great responsibility? Um, if there's any like you know argument being made. Um, through the the plot movements of the characters, like the absence of Hermione in Hogsmeade, combined with Harry's own attempts at deception, ultimately leading like leading to his temptation to pull another trick, which ultimately gets him in trouble. Right, like he was this close to not getting in trouble. He could have stayed in in the Gryffindor common room or the library with Neville, but he he uh, uh, gives Neville the password, which is breaking a rule. Then he pretends like he left his vampire essay in the library, so he lies. And then he uses the in invisibility cloak. Um, he finds himself in a situation where he can't wait to pull a prank, to, you know, to really like use this powerful thing that he alone has, but use it for his own entertainment and maybe for vengeance. And without Hermione there, it just ends in terribleness for everyone. Um, and 
everybody's like compromised in some way. Some people are covered in, in mud. Some people are scared, you know, Ron lies, Harry lies. Everybody seems like undone by trickery. And I know that Alex, you've brought up the Inferno quite a bit. It just reminded me of those, like those circle eight um, crimes that like, this is what you get when, when you, when you lie and cheat and deceive and like, the smart person isn't there to tell you that like, don't do that shit. That's only going to end badly. Um, and I, I don't know. Um, That's right. I, I, I don't know what you all, I don't, I don't know what you all thought of that, but it seems like really metaphoric to me. Yeah. I see that in two lights just to quickly say something is uh, uh, a, I completely agree. And B um, I think that that's, it's interesting that you, you hit on that because I think what that shows is that the darkening in this text comes directly from the actions Harry is taking that he is in some Hmm. way productive of the darkness and the darker tone. It's not that there's a darker tone. It's that he is acting in a more consciously malevolent way, more Voldemortian, more, more like the sorting hat warned about more like Snape seems to see in him. Because as you said, you know, he's always been sort of a rule breaker, but he was sort of charming in the first two books. But now when you lay it out in the way that you just did, he's sort of consciously lying to get his way and selfishly doing it and going against the better advice and wisdom of Hermione and disregarding the good advice that's coming near him. And he's sort of portraying those around him in a negative light. And um, I think that's very interesting. And I think, uh, probably unconsciously very deeply connected to the idea that the great enemies in this, in this uh, story so far have not been Voldemort, but Dementors, which are like internal enemies, right? They, they take out your good memories so that you only have bad memories. So they're very psychological mm. in nature. Mm. Um, and so it's as if the negative behaviors he is enacting consciously are making Hogwarts less of a heaven and more of a, hell because of his fraudulence like you said and um i mean that it it's like where is the evil coming from in this text i suppose there is Sirius black who's in some way connected to voldemort who who has reared his head here and did do some evil things in the past but it, it seems like it's having an effect on harry and then harry's having an effect on uh hogwarts in this story hmm. Yeah. Or, yeah. I, I I just West West did you want to chime in? Sorry, I was I was looking at the um the role of Hermione in this part seems to be connected to with um remembering Buckbeak's trial. Yes. Like, that's how the, the the chapter kind of begins with uh Hagrid having them down to his house to to try to get them to make up with Hermione and they sort of realize that they've been neglecting uh, Buckbeak and she of course has not right she's been there um, working with him the whole time and then the end of the end of the chapter and then kind of into the next one it sort of flows right into it Um, it's about her uh, having heard that it's uh, too late you know at this point and that's that's kind of a theme that that rings throughout this this book too is that idea of it um, of time like we've been talking about and how Hermione seems to 
have more of it than everyone else somehow. Um, memory and time, you know, she has a couple of those two very powerful um, mental aspects associated with her here. And, uh, and the decision-making thing, I think, just goes right along with that. Yeah, and that's interesting. She would almost be more interesting to, in some respects to follow through this, uh, this time, right? How, all those extra classes, what is she learning? And all that extra research about Buckbeak, she seems to be walking the path of the hero in a very interesting way, when, whereas uh, at least how we seem to be seeing it, to some extent, uh, Harriet is going the path of Cain. He's sort of walking a hateful path, a, a lying path right now. And, um, well, I don't know. Uh, but he does sort of play the part of the hero in the Quidditch final, right? Those Slytherin, they're so overdone in their antics. What did y'all think about that, that representation of sport with them being so heavy-handedly cheaters and uh, having changed out their team just for thugs who attempt to actually break the rules of the game by, like, hitting people with their bludger sticks and, rather than the bludgers <laughs> them and throwing them and uh, hitting the balls at the keeper. What, what did you think of the extent they were going to? I mean, they, this really does embody to me the idea that uh, Peterson puts forward of win, trying to win the immediate game but losing the bigger overarching game of life, which sportsmanship is supposed to actually represent. Like, you're supposed to be able to go home and be friends with these people. That is not going to happen after this game, especially after that dimension trick that they tried to pull. Well, so I thought it was interesting in light of the other Quidditch matches, right? Um, That, like, the first one, he's felled by the Dementors, right? Um, And uh, those are sort of like this vicious, life-sucking... beast or monster that sucks away all that's good um in your memory and makes you feel like you'll never be happy again to quote the movie but um the second one it's sort of this like he's at this false sense of security and triumph it seems like they pretty handily beat Ravenclaw because Ravenclaw was like all defense no offense um but he also has that like that Patronus charm that like isn't necessary um and I thought like Malfoy's tactics here of watching Harry and like hanging on his broom sort of reminded me a little bit of Cho's tactics but with malice um on the other hand like Harry also marks Malfoy um and sort of sort of plays defense that way the way that Cho played um, her strategy was to watch Harry and not for the snitch. Um, and, and it was something that we said was, you know, foolish in a way, or at least not, not designed to win. Yeah, not playing. But here it, it does seem necessary. Uh, no, I was just going to say that I, I, I guess our conversation last time was like, it went, Nowhere is there a conversation in the book about how unfair it is that he has a firebolt. But right. this game, it really seems like it's only because of the firebolt that they won. I was noticing that, and I, I wanted to bring it up, but we didn't really think that much about that question last time, so I didn't want to bring it up uh, because probably I, I care about that so much because I'm disagreeable, and so an unfair advantage to me is like the worst thing in the world 
or something that I would want to but, immediately address. I, I can't understand why this, why don't the, I mean, is that how good the Firebolt is that even Lucius Malfoy can't get at least one of them for this team <laughs> or that he bought a whole Nimbus 2001 suite for? It's like, how incredible is this broom? And yeah, he beats out Malfoy from like way behind him just because his Firebolt is way stronger, which I don't know if it's supposed to be a metaphor for like his goodwill, his benevolence, and how that beats out little negative, creepy Malfoy well, will. Um, he, he is only he is only initially beat to the to the um the mad dash for the snitch because he went to save Angelina, right? Ah. Like so he he abandoned his his strategy had been to just mark Malfoy, right? And yes. like kind of get between him and the snitch, and he abandoned that when he saw that literally every other member of Slytherin was going to bombard her, so he dashed to save her so she could score it went 80 20 or something like that so is he is he it does the broom listen to him ah. when he says uh you know faster faster go 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 harry urged his broom like that's a good do they, does, i didn't think i don't know i mean wizard relationship like that all right let me start this next one and then let me ask you about that the broom uh wizard relationship and whether it responds to benevolence more than malevolence all right because it is, I guess, another sort of want in some way. So that'll be interesting. Okay. All right, I'll start this in a second. And we're back. All right, so right when we switched uh, to recording number two for this session, we um, recording session number two, we were talking about the broom-wizard relationship and whether because of Harry's heroic acts trying to say, was it Katie you said, Katie Bell? Um, uh, I think it was Angelina, Angelina, Angelina Johnson. Yeah. Angelina Johnson. So he's going to save her from a, a full blitz from the Slytherin team. Um, all of them are going to try and attack her. And, um, and after saving her from certain destruction, uh, you were wondering whether the broom was listening to his thoughts, sort of like a, a wand or like the sorting hat, and also to his actions and was rewarding him to some extent or, or pushing harder or harnessing more from him and thus giving it more speed and allowing him to catch up and defeat uh, Malfoy, not only in the game, but in the moral game, the bigger game of acting more heroically and nobly and justly as a human and as a sports player. Um, yeah. So what did y'all think about that? The, uh, the broom, uh, mage relationship and how it might respond to them. We have seen a little bit of that. Uh, not really since the first book as much, though, I feel like. Yeah, I, I thought it was a good question that you asked about how it's possible that Malfoy hasn't bought a bunch of these brooms for the whole team. Right. Uh, it, yeah, it, it seems like there, there's, something, there's something a little bit special uh, even among brooms um, that that this one has, and it's part of it seems to be that it um, causes people to like completely lose control of themselves or something like that, right? Like the the way that everyone responds to the victory is is so like passionate and. Um, it's like sort of topsy-turvy, right? There's um, Percy uh, jumping up and down 
uh, and McGonagall is even more moved than um, the keeper. And it, it's sort of, I don't know, like sort of the same way that flight is to, to everyday locomotion, right? This victory is to normal victory or something. It's like mm -hmm. it raises it to another, to another level. This, this particular um, uh, magical magic thing. It's like when Gryffindor wins, everybody wins. Eh. Um, like in, uh, what is it, uh, roulette. Um, and so, or craps, rather. And, um, but, uh, yeah, no, yeah. Sarah, what did you think about that? The, this victory for all against this malevolent team that uses dark and deceitful tactics and that um yeah i mean i i sort of thought like what harry did to um like malfoy crab and goyle and then got in trouble for was sort of like a foreshadowing of like yeah like deception and sneaky tactics and uh you know violating the rules like that's not going to pay in the end but i also thought it was interesting that um uh so last time the when we were talking about the patronus and when he was learning the charm um and what are the three uh, what, what struck me is like what are the three memories that he tried and one of them was um flying and one of them was uh, Gryffindor winning the house cup and the third one was um, being told he was a wizard and that he belonged somewhere Ooh. and I sort of see like his victory and having having the support of you know Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw as well um, you know he doesn't have the support of Slytherin uh, but he has a wide amount of support in the entire school like that this school that became a home for him, this this world that became a home for him, and it also combines Gryffindor victory, um, community, and flying. And because at the end he says, you know, I could have produced like the best. He could have produced the world's strongest Patronus with how much what he felt when Oliver Wood handed him the cup. Um, and I just thought that was a nice little cap. Um, or a nice piece of craft that she did that like she finished that thread there um, and yeah yeah I think that was that's the end of my thought well um, that's that I think that's that's I completely agree I think that's a beautiful interpretation and also I think that that's supported by the fact that Harry played against both Ravenclaw and thus contained the seeds of what he learned from them in his assault mm -hmm. on Slytherin and so he had learned how to mark from Cho, right? And he had learned how to play ah. adversity through playing against uh, Cedric Diggory and also how to play, like, the bigger game because Cedric, you know, came up and, like, you know, was a good guy to him as well. And that was sort mm -hmm. of that Hufflepuff piece. But I also want to suggest sort of a negative interpretation of, that, uh, of this event just because of how overdone the Slytherin tactics are. The potentially this too is part of Harry's sort of warped perspective hmm. and that he perceives everybody as wanting him to win on his 
super special room that he has because he's a super special guy. And that those Slytherin guys, they're overdone like how a child would write uh, a bad guy. They're just, there's nothing redeeming in them. There's nothing ambiguous. There's nothing at a sort of sophisticated moral or ethical level in this game. It's just be skilled enough to beat this team that's way overdoing it. That's like, it's, it's amazing that the, the match wasn't even called. I suppose this is, maybe it's a British thing in their sports. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I just, um, I wonder to what extent, and that everybody loved it when he won, and that he now, and I do think that the piece of evidence that he could produce the best Patronus might disagree with my interpretation here, this negative one. But it's almost as if it's how a child would interpret the path of the hero mm -hmm. in a simplistic sort of, I'm the best, I'm the hero, and you're like this evil, deceitful villain, and it's just that obvious. Um, whether the situation isn't painted quite as truly as Harry, uh, or as it's represented from his perspective. I don't know. Um, what did you guys mm. think? I mean, what do you think of that? That, that seems pretty like valid, especially if you're thinking of it in terms of the bigger game and, and in terms of Buckbeak losing the trial, right? Um, that's one of the other elements that's sort of topsy-turvy at the end is that um, Hagrid is excited to tell Buckbeak that they've won. Um, it's, it's a touching kind of moment, but at the same time, it seems to be like losing sight of the, the larger problem, right? Like this, this cup is somehow standing in for all of the other things that one might have um, wanted, or like you said, you know, all those various happy memories sort of like coalesce into this one. Um, but there's so much else that's still that's still wrong, right? In a world where Buckbeak gets sentenced to death because Lucius Malfoy says so, basically. Right. Um, yeah, and so like you can you can narrow your pet perspective sufficiently to see this as the great be-all end-all moment, but that's like, you know, such a, yeah, I think a childish is a fair word for it, uh, or at least um, small, petty kind of way of seeing things. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting, and I, I didn't even think as deeply as I should have about the Buckbeak fact, right? That's what Hermione's been working on. Hagrid has been so understanding in two different moments where he said, oh, I saw you playing Quidditch the whole time, even though Hermione was helping me, and you said you would help me, but you didn't help me. And then saying, oh, Buckbeak will be happy, of course, with the knowledge that Buckbeak has been sentenced to death. And so it's like, you know, that's sort of a lukewarm thing to say, right? It's like, it's sort of sweet, or it's sort of like, you know, the, I'm glad you got the thing you wanted, even though my friend is going to die unjustly. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I, I guess I'll, I'll add in that I really am unimpressed with Ron. Because, like, Harry may have been practicing Quidditch all the time. Where was Ron? Like, he could... <laughs> um, I was wondering that myself. What was, what was he doing that kept... It was his, his, his fight with Hermione that kept him from, you know, saving Buckbeak or working to save Buckbeak. And, you know, of all of the three, 
who's the one who has a connection at the ministry that could have been leveraged? It's his dad. Um, and I guess I've, I've felt like this for a while now that like, I do find him unimpressive. Like his moral compass is underdeveloped. He's a little chippy. And I, I got to admit, like when Hermione like drops everything and hugs him at the beginning of this Quidditch final chapter, I was like, what? Come on, girl. Like all he had to do was like show a little bit of compassion for Buckbeak and you had to be tired and all of a sudden you're going to forgive him for being nasty. And uh, anyway, I was, well, I think she's, if I were her, she's beaten down. So she'll settle for just having, yeah, but <laughs> right. And so I just thought like, if I were her girlfriend, I would say I would have words with her. <laughs> but, if only she had like, I'd, I'd be like, but yeah, but, but she, yeah, but she was so alone. And, no. and I think obviously exhausted. I think that's what it is exposed here is that, um, she has like the psychic skin is completely gone. She, uh, chippy and sleeping through class and tearful, <laughs> all of those things like are just, she's stretched too thin, so to speak. Um, but yeah, and getting zero but support I, I guess, from her friends. And so she's... I guess, so, yeah, Wes, you said that, like, maybe it's a little childish. I think, like, Harry, Harry's explosion at Snape is childish. It's kind of like the way a, a, a child would um, mouth off to a parent. Hmm. Uh, I, I would have a... I, I don't think I've ever seen a student um, be that kind of... Uh, I guess I've seen students push the envelope with the teacher, but I've never seen them um, so enraged react like that. But um, uh, the, what he does to Crab and Goyle and Malfoy is totally petulant as well. So what if, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a way of indicating like the childlike nature of how they see the world and how they see wins and losses, um, uh, how they view means and ends or heroes and villains. And then obviously that's about to get extraordinarily complicated when all of those assumptions are completely upended. So maybe these two chapters really emphasize the petulant or the, the childlike nature of things. I, I do think the Buckbeak execution is one of those things that for a kid, um, like their first experience of injustice where they don't understand or feel powerless can be really an, an opportunity for instruction. Um, you know, why did that have to happen? Why do people die before they see they should? Like, um, that, that's one of those moments that can really change someone. And maybe those two chapters sort of emphasize how much they are in need of their, of their childlike nature being upended by an external force. Um, that demands ma uh, maturation. Yeah, yeah. The the um, the other little thing in this chapter that I think might go along with that is uh, among the things that Hermione messes up here is she misses out on the cheering charms lesson. Yes. Mm. And, and like of all the lessons to miss, right? That would have been one that she <laughs> might have wanted to get to be there for. And and it's funny because like. Harry uh, overdoes his cheering charm, you know, and I think that's sort of a little bit like, you know, what's going on in these yeah. chapters too. 
it's a little bit much. You know, it's a little, it just maybe you want to take a little time off, right? And so, and the other thing that she she does is goes into divination and just like completely like flips out on um, on poor Trelawney, right? Not unlike what Harry has done to Snape in the previous chapter, just like completely like negating the the teacher's authority, um, showing no respect whatsoever, and uh, and getting away with it essentially, right? Like just not having a consequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, I'm just looking at that that part about Harry overdoing the the cheering charm, and that's interesting. Reprovingly, as yeah, you're late, boys. Oh, but but also that Harry does see a grim or what looks like a grim out yes. there on the grass. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of I I don't know. Uh, Hermione is um, maybe again, you know, and as we'll see us in, in the next chapter, maybe jumping to some conclusions here with respect to Trelawney. So right, and I forget whether <laughs> well, it, but yeah. was it the grim or was it the Gryffindor? Quidditch victory because all she says is um my dear stalking towards you growing ever closer the grip you know so I I mean I think we're supposed to assume it was the grim but what if Hermione just like <laughs> she just I mean, she loses it for no reason um I don't I don't know that's just a, an alternative way of looking at it I'm sure it actually meant the grim I was just being cantankerous that is interesting, just from the perspective that the person she loses her temper on is also the person she least respects the authority of. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's also true of Harry as well, because he, he thinks of, I think, Snape in sort of a, a Thomas Aquinas sort of unjust authority way, and so does not recognize him as an authority, so treats him like a peer, sort of like how Lupin is treating him as a peer. And so just to bring up Dante, it's interesting to what we're... Uh, to what extent that is a negative representation in this text of what it is positively represented between Virgil and Dante during the Purgatorio, where Virgil will start to be questioned by Dante. Dante will actually rib at him about the fact that he wrote in the Aeneid about prayers being ineffective, whereas actually it happens to be the case in this Purgatorio that prayers do speed one up the mountain of Purgatory. And so he's correcting his teacher and thus becoming more a colleague than a teacher. And so Whereas Harry is sort of assuming that he can act like a colleague and I think thus proving Snape correct that he is like his father in that way. Um, uh, what Dante does is actually become like the master who he will at some point embody and surpass. Um, and so, uh, well, I, I'm wondering what y'all think about that, but I also think we should close pretty soon here so that we can uh, get back to rest so we can make the magic keep happening. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, Harry's got the, the Marauder's map. That's, that's sort of his, his um, Virgil figure right now, at least, um, until, and Lupin to an extent also. But uh, that, that idea that you, you sort of gain knowledge from someone to the point where you become more of a colleague to them, um, it does seem kind of interesting, like if you think about school in the most general sort of sense, um, all of the people 
in school who are your teachers are uh, training you up um, in in their image in a way, right? Like, and in reading books and stuff, right? You, or looking at a Marauder's Map uh, to get to get guidance from that. Um, you're you're getting it in a in a particular uh, in terms of language, in terms of um, uh, book book learning, I guess I'd say, right? Like this this whole the whole series is framed in terms of school. This is just something I was like thinking about a little bit and um, what in a, what kind of an effect that has versus other kinds of learning that you might have, right? Like more experiential learning out outside of school, um, how that would look differently. And I think that, you know, what Dante does in, in the comedy is to take his book learning and then sort of like make it embrace the entire world, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. um, it's something yeah. that I always wanted. I always wanted there to be a, a year when Harry and his friends go on a study abroad, you know, like they yes. leave the school and do something. And I guess the seventh book is kind of like that, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I just never, I never felt like there was enough stuff that wasn't in the context of teacher, student or book learning or, or stuff like that, um, that, that would really, you know, uh, really put this book, these, these, this series over the top for me. Right. That's interesting. I can see, I can see echoes of your thoughts from Philip Pullman's, um, the, the, what is it called? The dark material series. And exactly, the exactly. His dark materials. Yeah. Which is my favorite book series. Yes. I need to read, I need to reread those. I know I've seen the movies and I read the golden compass, but Wes, you just, you're making them seem so appealing. Can I put in another plug for a, a book that you all need to read really quickly? Yes. Um, it's not fantasy, um, but it's rare that a book makes me cry in public. And um, I'm not going to say that it's uh, the best written book, um, but it is extremely complex and timely. And I would be really surprised if your students had never heard of it, but it's called The Hate You Give, and it's coming out as a movie um, maybe this week, um, but I'd say 10 or so of my students put it down as like the best book they've ever read that they couldn't put down, that they stayed up late to read, and so I picked it up, and it's like 450 pages, so immediately I thought, wait, what? Uh, <laughs> but um, I mean, it's a fast read. I read like 150 pages on a three-hour plane ride. Um, but uh, it's not at all like what we're talking about, you know, and yet it kind of is. It's about, you know, friendship and community and learn and like book learning versus life learning. But it's about like a, a town or a neighborhood that's rocked by a police shooting. And um, it's just, it's, it's exceptional in terms of like the like really putting into a narrative some of the complexities that need to be um, wrestled with I think in a way that like fantasy fiction really does well they like it's a space in a totally new world where you can explore super super primary 
timely and timeless questions that affect the readers' lives outside of the book. But this is one of the first books I've read that like doesn't shy away from complexities. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to throw that out there that in between reading this, uh, these chapters, I had to like sneak in a couple chapters of this book because I couldn't put it down. It was so good. Well, truly this world is rich with uh, great treasures and ways to spend our time. And so we do conclude with a, an analysis of there's so many good ways to spend our time, so many good books to read. And I suppose we just have to keep making time to read them and discuss them and uh, share what we've got with each other so that we can mutually enrich each other. Um, and I, I hope the listeners are enjoying this series and we're getting uh, pretty close to the middle of it now. And so yeah. that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. What started as a summer project has become sort of a uh, life project, it seems. That's, uh, well, you know, there's something to be said for big endeavors. Exactly. What, what do we think is, we're available for, for next time? Like what, okay, so what I chapters? Thinking, I, I looked at uh, 16, 17, and 18. I'm sorry I'm losing my voice right now. Uh, I probably sound terrible. <laughs> I should rest it. But always talk. No, it's on fine. Uh, that sounds uh, good. 16 yeah. through 18? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I'm going to okay. be at Hawaii until Tuesday. So if we could do this on Wednesday next week, that would be really great. Or another date. I'm sorry that I've been traveling a little the last couple of weeks. Wednesday is Halloween. Um, oh, yeah. If we do do it on that, on so that day, cool. we should <laughs> we should definitely talk about what characters we would or things we would want to dress up as um i could actually dress up um <laughs> what, can, okay uh, um yeah we could i mean i could do it on halloween i don't have obligations to like hand out candy but i don't know if you do Wes. <laughs> uh no that won't be a problem i, I think <laughs> next wednesday sounds good cool okay cool. i'm really looking forward to sounds good y'all birthday and then Halloween. Truly, this is a magical month. That's awesome. All right. All right, cool. Till next time, y'all. All right. See ya. Take it easy.